This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Monica. Have you made any vacations out to the further lately? I can't find it. <laughs> it's so hard to get to. The further's pretty far away. I must be doing the wrong out-of-body experience or something. Or apparently I can I can time travel as a spirit, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I'm doing this wrong. Yeah, you might have to work at your astral projection uh. skills. All right, this is part two of episode number 65 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Insidious, chapter two. So if you're looking for part one, you are listening to the wrong file. Go away. We don't want you here. You'll have even less idea about what we're talking about than we did during the movie. <laughs> So you might want to listen to part one. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, basically this is the show on Film Geek Creative devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one. Again, this is part two. So if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening right now and go check out part one of our episode on Insidious Chapter 2. I'm just going to assume that if you're listening, you have seen the movie and you don't need a plot synopsis. So before we dive into things, here's a clip. I heard voices in the hallway. Daddy. You have to go. And he was talking to someone. You have to go. Is there something wrong with Daddy, Mom? Okay, Monica. Because you did not see the first Insidious film, I have no idea how you understood what was happening in this movie. I just took everything on faith and face value and just assume that whatever they were telling me was absolutely true. <laughs> I just, I just kind of sat and just took in information for about half the film. And I was like, all right, I think I got this. The uh, credit sequence does recap the fact that the kid was in coma and then now he's not, but with bringing him out of the coma or so then killed the medium Elise and it may or may not have been Patrick Wilson's character. Well, what happened is Patrick Wilson went into the further to rescue his son, and he did rescue his son, so his son woke up from the coma, but Patrick Wilson encountered this old woman's spirit. All we knew was that this old woman had haunted him when he was a child uh. as well, and that they had made him forget that all of this had happened. But so he, he reads this old woman spirit and he has this confrontation with her. Like, what do you want? Why did you haunt me when I was a kid? What's going on? And then insidious ends with him strangling Elise to death. And you realize that the old woman apparently possessed his body. Ah, oh, got it. 
I just knew that when Renee looked back at him, he's like, what, you think it was me? I knew immediately that was like, oh, yeah, it was you. That's way too suspicious. And then, of course, all his behavior throughout, like, the first half of the film is like, oh, yeah, no, you're, you're not right. Yeah. This is you being obvious. If you've seen the first film, you know that he did kill her and he is possessed. The problem is... In Insidious Chapter 2, they don't really communicate very well, like, what exactly that means. Like, we understand that some sort of entity is inside him, but it's like, okay, is the entity trying to appear normal? Is he sometimes in control of his body? Does he, does he just not realize that he's possessed? Like, to what extent is this spirit, like, in control of him? And there are moments when you, like, see him talking to himself, and you're not sure, like, is this all in his head? Is the spirit talking to another spirit? What's going on here? Yeah. It's just, it's very unclear. Unclear is a good adjective. Yeah, and then when you actually find out what the deal is and who the spirit is, it's still not very clear what exactly the details yeah. are of that. Like, it's Parker Crane... Mm -hmm. The Dark Bride, who is a serial killer. Which I'm assuming is a new character they introduce now in this chapter. Well, the first film, we just thought it was an old woman. Uh -huh. And we saw that this, there was this old woman, and we knew that this old woman spirit was, like, popping up in photographs and had some connection to Josh. But yeah. that's all we knew. And then in this movie, they reveal, no, it's not an old woman. It's actually this serial killer named Parker Crane with serious gender identity issues. Yeah, how about that? I've never seen that before. <laughs> oh, wait, Psycho. Yeah, yeah, there is there is a lot of Psycho in here. There is a lot of Psycho, including the overbearing mother, and then, of course, the cross-dressing, and a lot of the music. <laughs> right. And, and a lot of that was interesting. I just couldn't fully understand, again, what the mechanics were of it all. Like, okay, so the spirit of Parker Crane is in Patrick Wilson's body, but then he's also, like, talking to someone. Just assume that uh, each one body can hold one spirit at one time. Well, right. So but, uh, once but, the evil spirit moves in, then his actual spirit moves to the further. Well, right. I, I, I understood that. What I was trying to figure out is, okay, Parker Crane's spirit is in his body. Is Parker Crane talking to the spirit of his mother? Or is Parker Crane, like, crazy and he's hearing voices? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, I was, like, I was like, what's going on? Those are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> right. Well, well, the thing is, they, like, they make it clear that his mother is also a ghost and is a spirit. Yeah. And apparently, like, leads the paranormal investigators to the hospital and then to Parker Crane's house for some reason. To kill them. Right. Is he communicating with her spirit, or is this, like, all in his head? It's just, it's very, very strange. And that, I feel like, is what they really needed to explain. Okay, I get it now, yeah. Rather than all of this other stuff involving the further... Apparently there's a purgatory, because that's where Elise was hanging out, where she could, like, come back or so. Well, yeah, apparently the further is, like, purgatory. Yeah, it's a middle ground. Yeah, that's some sort of middle ground, which was interesting. They hadn't they hadn't said that, as far as I'm aware, in the first film. Yeah, uh, we just knew that, we just knew that it was like this weird spiritual realm of sorts. So yeah, she's still alive in the further. In the further, <laughs> she can help Josh's spirit, his astral self. Mm -hmm. The thing is, 
the further worked fine in the first film. It was kind of campy, but it worked well as this sort of creepy thing to introduce in the third act, just mm-hmm. because it was a location. It was, okay, Josh is going to go into the further and see some creepy stuff and then rescue his son. And that's really the purpose. Here in this movie, they start to get more into, like, what these spirits can do and, like, they can go into memories and at one point they go back in time and because you didn't see the first film, Monica, you might not have realized this, but the scene where Josh is in the further and then he, like, goes to the house Mm -hmm. and is interacting with himself, that is a scene from the first film. Yeah, I I overheard some critics comparing notes about that. Yeah, so you realize that at least in the first film, that scene, the spirit that was opening the doors and and doing some of this creepy stuff was actually Josh mm-hmm. from the future outside his body. It only works because there was that open there was that open ended piece in the first one that allowed them to then tie it in. Unless he, they originally thought that this could be somewhere where the second one segs into. Well, I mean, you really you originally just assumed that. The door was it opening was the and the alarm creature. was going yeah. off because, yeah, it was a demon or it was some other evil spirit. And I like the idea that they're saying, oh, what if that was actually Josh? Or what if that was actually mm-hmm. a quote-unquote good spirit? I like the idea that they're trying to twist what you thought was happening in the first film and expand on that. It mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Here in your notes, like, how does time work in the further? <laughs> yeah, they don't explain. Like, apparently they can time travel. Yeah. And actually, like, have an effect on the past. With the physical past, too. Yeah, we're, so so Josh can go back and become the spirit that he was he previously interacted with in the first film. He can go back to when he was a child And you realize that, oh, when, as a child, he was opening that door or whatever, he was actually doing it for his... Future self. (laughs) Astral self, future self. Yeah, like, that's really cool. They just never established that and explained how it worked. Yeah. And it it just leaves a lot of things open. And then later on, they're, like, going into Parker's memories. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Slow down. You need to clarify. What is the further? Is it just the spiritual realm where creepy stuff happens? Is it a way to time travel? Is it inside people's heads that you can influence their memories and their psychology? Like, what's what exactly yeah. is going on here? They don't nail down the rules. They're introducing concepts like time travel that need literal rules set in stone that you can understand and they're trying to incorporate that into a genre that by its very nature relies on the unknown and the undefined you know what the the thing about ghost stories what makes them scary is that you don't know what the ghosts yeah. can do they 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 don't operate within our regular laws so then when you try to introduce these conceits that really need rules it, there's mm-hmm. just a lot of friction and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah. And they never even explain, like, I still don't know, why did Parker Crane haunt Josh to begin with? Well, remember, it was that old guy in the hospital that grabbed onto him 
It was the last living thing he imprinted on him. <laughs> Is that what happened? Like, they never explained. I was already lost, so I just assumed, like, at that point, he imprinted <laughs> on him. And then when the mom goes down and uh, the next day, and she's informed that, oh, no, he died. So that was his spirit leaving him. Apparently. I mean, I mean, it was a creepy scene, but I'm not sure how that actually moves the plot forward and what purpose that serves. Because all we knew from the first film is that there was some supposed old woman spirit that had haunted Josh yeah. when he was a kid. We didn't know why. And then in this movie, they don't explain why either. It's just, it's a guy in the hospital that yeah. grabbed him. And I'm like, okay, did he not grab other No, people? but you see... You're missing that part where he was the last one. Say he was sedated after the attack or whatever, and then he died after that. So then it's like a haunting. It's the okay, last I guess. big thing that happens before death. How like in a, a lot of movies when like ghost things happens, it's usually like they're wearing the last things they died in. Okay, so see, now that's interesting, because now that makes sense as to why Elise, in her astral body, you know, they first mm -hmm. find her in the house yeah. from the first movie. They're kind of wandering around in the further going, where's Elise? And then it turns out she's in that house from the first film. I guess that's that's because she died there? In the same cardigan. Yeah. See, now if they, had, if they had actually come out and said, oh, he's haunting you because you're the last living thing he touched or he saw and he's drawn the light. They just assume that you've seen enough spooky stories that you got there. Juan has seen a lot of these movies, obviously, and borrows heavily from a lot of directors' trademarks and just story devices and themes and topics. So this could just as well be another one. I guess so. I guess so. That's. I mean, that was from my assumption. <laughs> Not even having seen the first one, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, without even context. <laughs> All they tell you in the first one is that these spirits are drawn to life, and they're trying to like possess the bodies of the living. So I guess I guess you could say that that's what they're counting on. That you understand. Well, it's also that it's an evil spirit. You know, it's the spirit of a serial killer. Right. The thing about Insidious too that just gets so crazy is that. In the first film, it was just, there are spirits trying to get into the world of the living. And mm -hmm. suddenly, now in Insidious Chapter 2, there are spiritual beings affecting other spiritual beings. Like, there are the astral spiritual forms of Josh and Elise and Carl go into the memory of another dead spiritual being. Parker Crane, and somehow getting him to open the door so they can defeat his mother and all she represents somehow psychologically that affects him in a way that removes him from Patrick Wilson's body? Um, okay, let me see how I... I, I got through this somewhat logically. It was that by disarming Parker's, like, anger against his mother, that lifted him out of Patrick Wilson's body so then his astral self can find its physical body. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the, like, uh, okay. It's a, kind of like a soothing the spirit sort of thing. He killed because he had to, he was angry at his mother. He was trying to reclaim his childhood, I think is how Elise explains it. And there's a sort of a curse as well that apparently uh, Josh, Josh, his character, is like falling apart because he doesn't kill. So he has to like kill to 
keep up appearances, like a, I don't know, like a Highlander? <laughs> yeah, that was really weird. Like, because he's possessed by a dead person, he's suddenly going to start rotting away. He doesn't kill. It doesn't even feed the further or something. I, I don't even know. They did it. Again, that's another thing they needed to explain. So, like, that explains the, the serial killer at corner. And then just to be able to get Parker to, I guess, sort of accept the fate that there is no, like, revenge against his mother or so. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what was that. I can't remember, really. But that's able to get him, like, sidelined so then... Josh can jump back into his spot. Apparently. Like, I didn't understand how... All he needed was a therapist. Right, and I can understand how psychologically that's important for Parker Crane to deal with all of his mother issues. I don't understand how that translates into him leaving Patrick Wilson's body. Also, it was strange. The whole thing with the cross-dressing and the trans identity was... And gender identity was kind of odd. With then, like, oh, there is actually, like, two people jumping into this body into Josh's body. It was like, oh man, this got way meta. What do you, it like, yeah, it kind of, yeah. yeah, transferred, kept transferring over. So it was like, oh, all sorts of identity questions coming up here. Right, right. Getting back to the whole thing about the body, like, starting to rot and fall apart, mm-hmm. all I could think was, okay, if he needs to kill to survive, why isn't he doing more killing? Yeah. And he seems, like, reluctant at first to kill Renee and the kids. So is it that Josh is still in a little bit control? Yeah, I, it's like, I don't know. They don't, the, like, that's the stuff they needed to focus on developing. There should have been, like, a wrestling match between those two, and then that's when they're like, oh, they're fighting for the, the soul of this character. <laughs> right, right. These are the questions that needed to be answered, and instead of answering those questions, they opened up all of these new questions about the time travel and what, it, how exactly it's all working. And again, I like those ideas, they just don't make sense. Yeah. I like the idea that all the spooky stuff in the first 20 minutes or so with like the piano playing and everything that that's actually Josh yeah. trying to get their attention. I think that that's kind of cool. That was cool. It, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mesh together. <laughs> and I have to say, I think the, the biggest scare for me was one of those hallway shots when Renee's walking around and I think she's like investigates the piano and then she investigates the child's toy that keeps rolling around or yeah. something. And then she, like, walks out into the hall, and suddenly they, like, fly up into the air. Yes. That got a jump out of me. And there were a lot of scares like that in the, in the first Insidious film. And that's, that's the only time in the second film that I jumped. Yeah, when it starts getting really explainy, you can't really get too scary. And it's more like just a weird fun facts about this random serial killer. Right. It, it's like it can't decide what kind of movie it wants to be. It does get a little campy. Mostly in the dialogue. <laughs> I don't mind the camp. The movie is weird because, again, it's it's taking this genre that requires things to be unknown and very abstract, just these general spirits and ghosts, and it's suddenly demanding that all of these rules be placed onto them. It's It's like trying to apply Inception-style logic to the spiritual and the abstract. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it works either and it just starts to make you question like okay how can these spirits interact with the real world what are the rules exactly you know sometimes the investigators and the mediums they can like catch glimpses of the spirits in the spirit world yeah there's no real set of rules in place but the way the plot is structured 
it makes you ask all these questions when really you shouldn't. You should just be freaked out. Well, that's why you don't explain this stuff. Just assume it happens. <laughs> right, right. We don't want to know how the exorcism is performed. We just know that it's done. Right. The way the movie ends just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, okay, so first of all, Dalton is apparently still being haunted by spirits and stuff comes at the, like the I guess it's the spirits of the girls that were killed or like in his closet at one point. Yeah. And there's that scene where they like talk to him through the little tin can phone and one of them like runs out. And I was just thinking, wait, why are they haunting the kids? Why is this happening? Because the whole thing about the first movie was they're haunting Dalton because they want into his body. Yeah. But that was a demon. And now these are dead spirits and souls. And I'm like, well, wait, why are they here now? I don't understand. What do they want? I just assume like it was something he has a connection to the further, so he was able to see them. They're trying to get his attention. I guess so. Come to the further. And then also at the very end when he goes to rescue his dad, all I could think was, Wait, have you figured out how to project while you're awake? Or are you just really good at falling asleep? <laughs> <laughs> because he's done it so many times he's just used to it <laughs> he's got it down to a science that kid i mean it's a high adrenaline situation they're trying to hide from patrick wilson who's trying to kill them and he's banging on the door making all this noise and then dalton's just like oh i'm gonna go over here and fall asleep and rescue him and i was like wait how can you do that also, how how screwed are those kids now? Because their dad, like, almost killed their mom and everything else that's gone on. And, like, the little boy was haunted. There's no fixing all that. They need some serious therapy. Yeah. And I was trying to understand, like, wait, so somehow if he holds on to the phone and the string in the real world, he can, like, take it with him into the spirit world so that they can find their way back? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure how he was able to travel with all that. Again, it's just like some things are left up in the air and abstract, and then other things, it seems like there's very real, literal rules that they can use to their advantage. And I was just like, I don't understand which is which and how yeah. it all works. Where one ends and the other one begins. <laughs> Did you understand the final scene at all? Which final What exact point? Like how it ends with the, the Specs and Tucker, the two paranormal investigators, they go to that family's house and ghost elise is with them and then there's that girl who's in a coma or something and it's implied there's some sort of evil presence yeah i just assume like oh great insidious three that's all i got out of that like there's an even bigger baddie i don't know maybe the mother had someone haunting her they're clearly leaving it open for insidious three i was just wondering like wait Who's this family? This is a completely new family. Yeah. And they mentioned, like, the hospital or someone tried to kill themselves. And I was like, wait, did they mention this in the movie and I just forgot? Like, who, who is this? Should I know who this is? It's definitely setting up for someone totally new. Well, I went to the Wikipedia page after the movie to try and piece together what exactly happened in the movie. Because <laughs> I was still trying to just put all the pieces together. And... Apparently, the implication is supposed to be that it's the demon from the first film oh. that is now haunting another girl, and that's why she's supposedly in a coma in a wheelchair or something. Oh. 
According to the Wikipedia page. That could be like someone positing that or like guesstimating that that's what's actually happened. Right. Like I got no sign of that at all. Yeah, no, I didn't either. Was there even a ghostly figure at all that they showed? But hey, I didn't know what to look. I didn't see. All I saw was like a close up of the girl. I Maybe I, it was blurred out behind her. I'm not sure. Well, I didn't see anything either. And I was looking like, oh, is this another ghost? Is it the demon from the first film? Like, they they do a close-up on the girl, and then the camera raises up, and it shows all these shadows behind her. But I didn't see anything there. Maybe it's a lot of demons. I don't know. I was like, wait. Many demons. Again, is it like, okay, is this the real world, and we just can't see all the stuff that's there? Well, it is Elise, so it could be the astral zone. (laughs) I mean, if it's her point of view, we should be able to see whatever's there, but we don't. But we don't, because come back for the third installation. I guess. It's just, I, I was just so weird. I, like, that scene happened, and I was like, what just happened? <laughs> Why are you ending the movie this way? <laughs> yeah. Like, the first one ended in a way that was understandable. Like, oh, okay, Patrick Wilson's possessed, and he killed Elise. That's kind of shocking. Interesting way to end the movie. This one ended, and I was just confused. Yeah. <laughs> I was just confused for a good half of the movie, so. I can't even imagine what watching this film would be like if you if you haven't seen the first one. I mean, it's not super complicated. I just also took everything that was given to me and didn't ask questions. <laughs> I didn't look too closely, because if I started asking questions that, you know, you might figure out, oh, you weren't here for the first one, Meh. No, no. Well, well, here's the thing. Even if you have seen the first film... Questions. And you start asking <laughs> questions... Yeah. It's not very clear. There aren't any answers. Yeah. It seems like there's just a lot of holes in this movie. I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but then after the movie ended, I was thinking about it, and I was like, I have no idea what happened. I still like The Conjuring better. Well, yeah. I mean, you really liked The Conjuring. <laughs> I'm not sure which I liked better, because I have problems with each one. Oh, so there you go. Insidious still is hot for you. I think as a whole, The Conjuring holds together better as a film. Yeah. But Insidious Chapter 2, I kind of admire how loopy it gets and how ambitious it is and, and just how many things it's trying to juggle. And it doesn't pull it off and it's a mess, but I admire the attempt. I mean, again, you can still admire what it could have maybe sort of might have been, but it's not what ends up on screen right it doesn't work it doesn't fully come together on screen but at the same time there's so much going on and so much they're trying to do i was never bored and i felt like the movie still was a fun ride on its own even though it doesn't make much sense all right i think that james wan and lee winnell they're trying to do some really interesting things they're definitely trying to do more than most horror movies yeah and i think in terms of what they were trying to pull off, especially with all the time travel and stuff, it's a much more complicated movie, structurally speaking, than The Conjuring. But mm. it, it's it's like they bit off more than they could chew. Yeah. All right, is there anything else you have to say about Insidious Chapter 2? A lot of head scratching. I guess I'll watch Insidious 1. <laughs> you should. You should watch Insidious 1 and, le- and let me know what you think. After all this, I might as well. <laughs> like, Insidious, the first one, it's a weird movie. You have to be in the right mindset. You have to be willing to go with it because it's creepy for the first two thirds. And then that third act, people tend to either just love it and go with it or hate it and just be like, this is too campy and weird. What's what's happening? But now that you've seen Insidious Chapter 2, that shouldn't come as a huge surprise to you. Yeah. Well, the last thing I have to say is 
how self-aware do you think James Wan is here with how campy it is? Like, there's that really goofy line, I miss feeling pain, but not as much as I miss inflicting it on others. Like, it's so over the top. And then there's, like, random shots of Patrick Wilson just, like, standing menacingly in doorways. (laughs) I would hope if you're this familiar with the horror genre that you know what camp is. You know where the line is. I think, again, it's just another way of homage. I definitely think so. And I I definitely feel like James Wan is is walking a fine line here. He's trying to make something scary, but he's also acknowledging that it is campy and kind of goofy. And that's a really, really tough balancing act to pull off. I do think that there is more comedy in this chapter than there is in the first film, especially all the stuff with Specs and Tucker. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were present in the uh, second half of the first film. Okay. They're in all of this one. Yeah. They provide a lot of the comic relief, and most of it worked for me. And I, I think the movie did a pretty good job of trying to balance these different tones, where it would be really creepy one minute, and then kind of goofy and campy the next minute. Yeah. Uh, I thought their their characters were way welcome. It was It was a good pause, a little break. From the intensity, and then right back into scary. Right, and and actually, Specs is played by the writer Lee Winnell. Oh, okay, did not know that. Nice. All right, well, I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion on Insidious Chapter Two here on Cinema Fix. We will be back in either a year or two years to discuss James Wan's next film, Fast and Furious Seven, <laughs> which I'm guessing will be a lot different. Ooh, from this. yeah, it. That should be interesting. Is that coming out next year? Uh, I think so. Okay. I know they just started filming, so I believe that's scheduled to come out either in 2014 or 2015, and it'll be interesting to see what James Wan can do with a larger budget uh, in a genre that isn't horror. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe Paul Walker and Vin Diesel will have to travel to the spirit world and see their their friends that died in the previous film. Oh, man. Harsh. <laughs> what? I think that'd be great. They have to rescue them? Oh, man. (laughs) Now we're going to jump the shark. (laughs) That's a perfect segue into Reboot This, the final segment of the show, where we pitch either a prequel, sequel, or remake to the movie we just discussed. I think that's going to be my pitch this week, Monica. That's going to be your pitch? All right. Yes, for Insidious Chapter 3, let's just forget how Insidious Chapter 2 ended. Let's just make it Fast and Furious Ghost Edition. (laughs) Okay, or have Insidious Chapter 3, but then have Patrick Wilson or Elise or whoever encounter Han from the Fast and Furious film <laughs> out in the further. Oh, wouldn't mind that. I do like <laughs> Han's character. All right, Monica, if the studio came to you and said, James Wan is away directing the Fast and Furious movies, we want you to direct the next installment of the Insidious series. What would you do? Would you do a prequel, sequel, or remake? Well, it, it actually looked like the end of Insidious 2 was leading to, like, a Latino family. Or at least it kind of looked like it. And I got really excited because I wrote at the beginning of my notes, like, man, I'd love to see a Latino family have to deal with something like this. Like, would they see uh, Santeria? Would they see, like, more, like, something in the Catholic Church? Like, what could go on with that? In terms of, like, at least in American movies, there hasn't been a lot of exploration of, like... What if it was a haunting for an ethnic family? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the producers of the Insidious films is Oren Pelly, who directed Paranormal Activity. Mm-hmm. 
And we already talked about how, like, that series, Insidious 2, seems to, like, be focused on expanding the mythology. Yeah. Of, of what's going on here. And um, Paranormal Activity, I believe that that series is getting a Latino spinoff of sorts. All right. So I don't know if that's just a thing that Oren Pelly's like really into now. From what I've seen from back when I used to work at a mainstream movie theater, um, there's a lot of Latinos would come out for the horror movies as date nights and like, that sort of thing. So, and when they do demographics, when you can look up the demographics online, Latinos go to the movies more often than any other ethnic group out there. So, somebody's going to these movies. Someone went to Final Destination 5. <laughs> okay, well, it's interesting you, you bring that up about how, like, Insidious 3 would look from that cultural perspective. I'm wondering if that would allow them to get into more of more details about like what exactly the further is would they incorporate more traditional catholic mythology would would they say like hey yeah there's heaven hell and the purgatory yeah that's what i was wondering right and and here's exactly what the rules are and how mm -hmm. it works there's definitely potential there for them to start to explain some of the stuff that they didn't explain in insidious chapter 2 and it just seems for a lot of, like, mainstream horror, it always seems to center on a white family. For at least, like, the familial um, sort of horror films, it's always like, in a suburban neighborhood where nothing could possibly ever go wrong. And I was like, you know what? I want to see one of these hauntings try and take place in the middle of a city. How hard would that be? Not in a, in a creepy Victorian-looking house. Like, you know there's something happened in the basement there. Well, there was that movie bones yeah uh which took place in the inner city and starred snoop dogg as an evil ghost gangster oh okay well <laughs> i mean more exploration than just the normal trope of the cul-de-sac with the bad yeah. house at the end yeah there is leprechaun in the hood well let's not talk about leprechaun <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's not get into that discussion. that's that's uh we were worried about camp and uh insidious too no that's not camp <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we will be discussing Prisoners, which is not the sequel to Orange is the New Black. Oh, I am so waiting for the Orange is the New Black. For a movie? No, just for the next season. Oh, yeah. Me too. That's a great show. Prisoners looks to be completely different in tone. <laughs> looks pretty dark. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if that movie lives up to the marketing campaign. Yeah. All right. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, Navigating the Newsroom, and Avenging Angels. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastimovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week being high on cinema and then visiting your younger self. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio!
Yeah.